you for that, uh, Lauren. Thanks for reading, Chris, and the prayers, Mary, and everyone else who's contributed. It's lovely to see you. It's not an easy passage to hear, is it, actually? Um, And by the way, I'm not qualified to bring this message today. I don't think anybody can open the book of Job and feel that they are ready to bring this portion of Scripture to us. Um, But it's it's absolutely profound, isn't it? I was struck as Chris was reading. I hadn't noticed it the first time round, so much so that when Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. That's his first response. His whole world is wrapped up in the love of God and the worship of God. And um, we're gonna, it's very difficult when you kind of do an overview on, on something like this, but there's a background story to this, and we'll unpack some of that later on. Most of you will probably know that background story. Um, uh, but we're going to journey with Job as we continue our series on faithfulness in the Bible. We've already looked at Abraham and, uh, come on, Joseph, thank you. Yeah, who remembered that? That's one of you. Thank you, Mary. Brilliant. Now, I suspect that most of us, maybe, maybe all of us, maybe we've read this book through, and it's, it's most powerful when it's done in one sitting, when you get, a, you get a flavor of the structure and the shape of it and the drama of the speeches as they, as they carry through their cycles. But I have to be honest, it does go on a bit, doesn't it? It's over 40 chapters of speeches. It demands our attention and perseverance. Let's say it demands our faithfulness in sticking with it. One guy wrote this about uh, reading the whole book of Job. He says, we must respect the leisurely pace of the Hebrew literature. I love the fact that it is leisurely, even though it is powerful and traumatic at the same time. Now, the secret to the whole book is in the structure of the book. If you ignore the first two chapters, these give us the background information to the speeches about why Job is in trouble. But the friends don't have that background information. The friends that come to him and start offering their advice, their godly advice, they don't know the background story. But the rest of it, after Job laments and mourns his great and terrible loss, his three friends come to him, they sit with him for a week in silence, and then they rise up one after the other, giving speeches again and again and again, answering the question, Job, you are, why are you suffering? You are suffering because you must have done something terribly wrong or terribly offensive to offend God. But they don't know the background story, which is that God has invited Satan to tempt him, to test him. That's the background story. Satan has been given permission. Very strangely, Satan has been given position, uh, permission. So the catastrophe hits Job. It literally is a satanic whirlwind of evil and destruction. And as I said, the friends come, then they start speaking after a week, one friend after another. And like Job, they are perplexed, maybe like us sometimes, about why the innocent suffer. Why, as God calls Job righteous, why does even a righteous, innocent man suffer like this? He must have done something wrong, is the cry is the assumption from his friends. 
He must have done something wrong. It's like that story as well in, in the Gospels. They say to Jesus, why did the tower fall on those Galileans? Did they do something evil? And Jesus says, no, you've completely misunderstood the point. So they offer their worldly ad advice, dressed up as wise God talk. We Christians can be experts at wise God talk. Sometimes we need to sit with our friends in silence, maybe a bit more than we are used to. But we don't like silence very much, so we yap on, don't we? We yap and yap and yap. Not you lot, others, the other Christians out there. Now some of it... Some of the advice that the friends offer as they read, as you read through the chapters, some of the advice is really quite wise and quite wise and godly and, and right. They're hitting the mark in so many ways. They seem so close and yet they are so far away because they don't know the backstory. And in so many ways, like us in our relationships, we make assessments of things and offer wise God talk, but we don't know the backstory. And that changes everything, doesn't it? And there are times when we haven't known the backstory and we've been perplexed and times when we have and it's unlocked the key to the situation to bring a resolution. A bit like false teaching that plagued Paul's ministry in the New Testament. Have you noticed how accurate false teaching can seem? It can be 99% right, but that 1% is a complete deviation from biblical truth. Or... Or the, the heresies in church history. They sound so close, and yet they're so far. And so Christianity splinters and fragments even further away. Because there's always a majority of truth wrapped up in what is so obviously wrong. And Job knew this. He knew he was innocent. The three friends have no knowledge that it was God who permitted Satan to act upon Job. That changes everything, doesn't it? What a wager. What a wager that, that God has played. God suggested to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? God calls him righteous. It's staggering language. It's like God is saying, here's the best of the best. Satan, do your worst. And in it all, Job did not sin, despite the demonic, satanic attack that had plagued him. They don't know that Job is being tested, not because he's the worst of men, but because he's the best of men. God offers the best that's why Job would say in chapter 13, verse 12, to his friends, your maxims are proverbs of ashes. They mean nothing because you don't know the backstory. Now, the first two chapters open on account of Job's righteous life and his vast family wealth. And then we've, we discover in, uh, in verse 6 that there's a divine council taking place where the sons of God present themselves before El Shaddai, God Almighty. And unbelievably, the sons of God counsel include Satan. It's very mysterious to us, isn't it? 
Very mysterious. You're going to get a lot of mystery in what is the oldest book of the Old Testament. If you want to discover more about the divine counsel, the best scholarly work on this is by the late, recently deceased Michael Heiser and his work there. So God suggests, have you considered my servant Job in verse 8? Satan says that Job only worships you because you've made his life good. Look at the abundance of his family and the abundance of his goods. This is the only reason that he worships you, God. And God says, right, okay, we'll soon see about that. Which begs the question, doesn't it? When you drill down deep, what is the reason why you're here this morning? What is the reason why you worship God? Has he captured your heart, set it ablaze for the glory of the kingdom of God? Why are you here? It's a, it's a very pertinent question. So God permits Satan to destroy everything that Job has, and this is the great test. Step by step, he loses things, family, livestock, physical health, mental health. The one thing Satan is not permitted to do is to take Job's life. That's the, he can do anything else. In other words, God has limited the satanic influence, even though God has allowed the devastation to take place. It's heartbreaking. So with everything gone and the flesh on his body barely hanging on to his bones. He, he sits there in the ashes. His wife comes to him and demands, that why don't you curse God and die? Chapter 2, verse 9. When you don't know the backstory, that seems like a reasonable thing to suggest from your beloved. <laughs> don't ever take that advice. Don't ever curse God and die because things get tough. Or too tough or unbearable. Job's reply in chapter 2, verse 10 is this. You speak like a foolish woman. Don't ever say that to your wife as well, by the way. <laughs> Shall we accept good from God and not trouble also? Look at his biblical framework for thinking about life and God. I don't just worship God because God gives me good stuff. I worship God because he's God whether I get good or bad whether I get good or evil. And then the text concludes, in all this, Job did not sin in what he said. Wow. Hands up if anyone has sinned in what you've said. <laughs> gotcha. That's everyone. <laughs> Hands down now. Thank you, Gillian. And so along come his three friends. They don't know all this. They just know that devastation has come to him. I want to raise the contemporary issue now. Isn't it fascinating? It's fascinating to me. Hopefully it will be to you. How the oldest book in the Bible speaks to the most pressing pertinent question of our age today. Why is there suffering if there is a God? Or maybe... Because there's so much suffering, I won't believe in God. I've heard, I mean, I've heard people say that. It's reasonable. It's a good question. 
How are you going to help someone discover who God is whilst they ask confusing questions that are really powerful? These are the sort of questions that can sound so right coming out of the friends of Job's, uh, the mouth of Job's friends, and they sound so reasonable and straightforward, but drill down, and you do start to see the satanic influence here. Since if there is no God, this is the key, if there is no God, then literally your sufferings don't matter at all. Who cares if you suffer? Who cares if nearly 30,000 people have died in a Syrian and Turkish earthquake? If there is no God. Right? So what? We live in a chaotic, random universe. <laughs> Who cares if a few die as long as it's not me? We live in a universe, as Richard Dawkins famously says, of blind, pitiless indifference. But here's what Job shows us. Here is the wisdom of God from the Word of God via this suffering man of God. Because whenever a person raises questions like these, why do the innocent suffer? I can't believe in God because of unjust suffering, the innocent suffering. Whenever a person raises these questions, which may or may not be legitimate, they may or may not be being petulant, but at some fundamental level, when somebody raises those type of questions, they care, right? Why do they say those questions? Because at some foundational level, they care. Why do they care? Because they're made in the image of God. The fact that they care enough to ask the question is the evidence for the existence of God. Because we live in a moral universe. And so questions of injustice and innocent suffering deeply affect us all. And even if an atheist says, I don't believe in God because there's suffering of the innocent, that's evidence for God in that person. Right there. Because nothing can be unjust or moral or immoral, rather, in a universe without God. Because without God, good and evil, justice, morality, righteousness, everything is irrelevant, totally irrelevant. And yet the very claim that someone makes, I won't believe in God because of the innocent suffering, is basically a dead man crying out to the living God for resurrection. God, help me! I need to see who you are. As we saw earlier, God sees us doesn't he? Do we see God? And so in the book, when after all of the wind and the hot air of Job's friends and they're talking, their speeches, guess who turns up and starts a speech of his own? El Shaddai, God Almighty. He turns up and I tell you something, I don't know about you, but it makes my ears tingle every time when God starts speaking back to Job and his three friends. He rebukes Job's three friends. He corrects Job's three friends. And the truth will have hurt them, for sure. But you can also be sure that the truth sets you free. Listen to this, chapter 38. This is on the next slide. Then Yahweh 
answered Job out of the storm and said, oh, it's just too good. Who is this? Who is this that darkens my counsel? Who speaks words without knowledge? Then he says, brace yourself, Job, like a man. I will question you And you will answer me. (laughs) Job had said in chapter 23, verse 6, Would God contend with me in the greatness of his power? And Job says, no, he wouldn't contend in the greatness of his power. He would pay attention to me. Job's got that 50% correct. God is contending with Job in the greatness of his power whilst paying attention to him. So we get a tour de force of of God's speeches, of creation, of power, majesty, mystery. We get a, a theatrical introduction to the greatness of God's power. It's really quite something. And I think the point is this. Because God made us, because human beings are made in the image of God, because we live in a moral universe, because suffering matters, we matter to God. And I've said this many times from this very pulpit as well. But the human challenge is not to despair because of suffering, but to wait for God in faithfulness in the suffering. Just to wait patiently for God. That's why we talk about the patience of Job. When I was a young boy, I was a very patient boy. Just like you were, well, and girls as well. Um, were, you, were you called, is patience one of your virtues, church? We've got a lot to learn, haven't we? <laughs> We've got a lot to learn. Halfway through God's speeches, Job has a little cameo speech. In chapter 40, verse 4, he says, it's like he goes, I am of small account. What shall I answer you, El Shaddai? I lay my hand on my mouth and I will speak no more. It's like there's the end of words as the God whose word became flesh keeps on speaking. It's one of the reasons why I love um, G.K. Chesterton. He wrote a book about Job, and in the introduction, he said the riddles of God are more satisfying than the solutions of man. Live with the mystery. Live with the riddle. We cannot, we cannot outthink or outthwart or outsmart God. We live with the, with the mystery And therefore, we live in faithfulness. And I think Job knew this in his very bones. God had made a wager. And Satan, because he's a liar and a murderer and a thief and a cheat, he's also a loser. He lost the wager that God had made with him. Because God isn't a genteel 17th century English dandy. I'm really sorry to disappoint some of you there. He's not a gentleman. Who is this that darkens my counsel? He's the Lord Almighty, not the Lord Almighty. 
He is your Father for sure, but He's also your mighty Redeemer. And so finally, we see His speech poured out to Job. And in time, His speech would also be poured out again in the Word become flesh. As if God says, do you want to know what innocent suffering is all about? Do you want to know what immoral actions are? Do you want to know what brutality of the state looks like? Do you want to know what suffering, injustice, sacrifice and evil really look like? Well, you'll see it in time. When you see God the Son, the Word of God, God's speech that came to Job and now hangs on a cross. And we hear that speech, that um, enfleshed word of God saying, Father, forgive them. Because they don't know what they're doing. They don't have a clue what they're doing, Lord. As he redeems the entire world from its sins. We don't know what we're doing, but we have a God who does. Praise God. I want to finish with the famous verse from chapter 19 where the faithfulness and the perseverance and the patience of Job right in the midst of his suffering is encapsulated in his great cry of faith. Chapter 19, verse 25 and 26. It's just so wonderful. Right in the midst of his speeches. He says... Well, let's go to 23, actually. Verse 23 of chapter 19. Oh, that my words were written. <laughs> they are, Job. Don't you worry about that. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead they were engraved in the rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives, he says, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after the skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh, I will see God. If ever there's a word of Scripture that speaks life to our death, it's this one. Pre-Christ, that is. So afterwards, God restored Job, albeit after the tragedy. But there's also something else that God instructed Job to do. He said, pray for your friends, make sacrifices for them, so that I can forgive them for the stupid things they said. And Job did. And don't we have a great high priest, church, who also makes intercession for us, for the stupid things that we say and do. Praise his holy name. And God bless you, church. Amen. God bless you.